Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Chips, a soccer podcast from Vice Sports. I, as always, am Aaron Gordon. Uh, sounding a little different today because I am uh, battling a fever, cold, just one of those like general nasty things that seems to be going around. So I'm recording this from the luxury of my own home. Uh, joining me on the line... Back to normal here. Normal days here at Chips is uh, Will McGee in the UK. Will, how are you doing over there? I'm doing fine. Unlike you, I'm not taking a day off, you know, relaxing, scrounging like you are. I'm in work, you know, and uh, I feel I feel good about that. I feel healthy, strong. So, yeah, everything's fine. You have no idea how happy I am for you that you are feeling healthy and strong <laughs> on this day. <laughs> I've never quite had anyone like rub it in my face before while I was sick. Like, you know, I'm actually feeling pretty great. So, so thank you. Thank you for that. I feel like it's been an abnormally interesting week in the world of soccer, considering it's like late February and usually things kind of are like settling in at this point. But I guess we have to thank Leicester City for giving us one of the weirdest managerial incidences to happen in the middle of the year that I can kind of remember, like just in terms of how everything went down and how everyone reacted to it. Like this was just such a strange week. If you're listening to this podcast, you almost certainly have heard that Ranieri got fired by Leicester City and it didn't go over well, I think it's fair to say. Will, what was the deal with this? Well, obviously sacking your, I guess, most successful manager ever after less than a year after he won the kind of Premier League title, that's always going to be fairly controversial. My favourite statistic about this was that, I don't know if you remember this particular man, but um, there was a guy called Steve Keane who managed at Blackburn. Do you remember Steve Keane? Vaguely, yes. He was extremely bad at managing Blackburn. In fact, he was so bad that he was like almost an archetype of a manager who just is hated by the fans and generally kind of a bit of a disaster. He lasted a good deal longer in the job than Ranieri did. So basically... I think he took over from Sam Allardyce and basically within a season and a half, Blackburn had been relegated and he still managed to keep his job longer than the guy who won the Premier League with Leicester. So, yeah, I mean, the world is a, is a fucked up, crazy place, I guess. But um, it, yeah, it's definitely been quite controversial. I think it was taken extremely badly by, you know, probably the majority of the commentary app and it seemed like quite a lot of Leicester fans until they beat Liverpool on Monday evening when literally everyone just completely forgot about it being a, you know, a kind of act of perfidy. And now the conventional wisdom seems to be that 
it was basically definitely the right thing to do. I'm not that interested in whether it was the right decision to fire him or not. Like that actually, that conversation actually really bores me because it gets into all of the like traditional debates that we have whenever a team facing relegation fires its manager. Like we always then have to debate whether or not it's the manager's fault or, you know, all these other things. And it's like, those are, those are decent debates, but like this was so much more interesting to me because it really felt like everyone was reacting like Lester had literally taken Ranieri out back and shot him in the face to put it like it was so melodramatic like everything about it was like I can't remember which commentator or like columnist for a UK paper called it a felony like he repeatedly used the word felony to describe Leicester City firing Ranieri and I don't understand under what definition of that word he was working. It made no sense to me whatsoever. And then Ranieri put out his statement, which was even more melodramatic than what everyone was saying about him getting fired. And everyone reacted like the statement was the greatest thing in the world, whereas I'm gonna, not going to lie to you, Will. I couldn't stop laughing reading it. Like, the opening sentence in it is, Yesterday my dream died. I don't understand that at all. Like, you just won the Premier League in the most glorious season in the world for a team that had no expectation of doing it. Like, your li- your life is more remarkable than almost anyone else who has ever lived by traditional measures, and yet you act like what just happened to you is, like, the greatest tragedy in the world. I'm just very confused by this whole thing. I just don't understand anyone's reaction to it at all, and I feel like I'm living on a different plane of reality as everybody else so you laughed at Ranieri's dreams dying you laughed out loud at that yeah because I think you're a monster well I think I I don't okay (laughs) I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of how to best put this but like basically I just didn't believe that the statement was genuine I thought that either it was like the shock of getting fired hadn't worn off and he wasn't really like talking with a level head which like I mean, we all do when a when a major life change happens, and I think that's totally fine. It, I guess I should say that it wasn't really the statement itself I was laughing at. It was the way that everyone reacted to the statement as this completely reasonable and genuine letter of appreciation from a man who has been wronged. You know, it was like this notion that a great injustice had happened, and the statement which begins with, yesterday my dream died, from a man who's... This is at this. Okay, look. Let me also say that this is at the same time that everyone was saying over and over, like this doesn't diminish from last season's accomplishments. This doesn't take away from it. And then at the same time, he's saying, "Yesterday, my dream died," and everyone's like, "Oh yes, that's very that's that's a great statement." Like both can't be true. Either he accomplished his dream last year, or his dream has died. How can both be true? And the mere fact that I'm even talking about it this way and this seriously even further like highlights to me just how ridiculous this whole thing has been. I definitely think there's been like a good degree of cynicism involved in it, like from kind of all parties in that you can never really tell who's releasing statements that are like media managed and who's actually writing stuff that from the heart. I have to say I'm aware that this is quite silly and also possibly a bit out of character, but I did find his statement kind of vaguely affecting and kind of I found myself feeling a little bit mawkish about it. But I mean, I think that was just purely me thinking that, you know, I mean, essentially it's a bit of a shame that the narrative of, you know, Leicester's title win had to end this way. It's probably just me getting caught up in that emotion. Nonetheless, I personally have kind of found a dark humour in the way that his players have been reacting because obviously there's been a lot of chat about the players, I guess, kind of, you know, 
in inverted commas stabbing him in the back and there's a bit, it's been very it's been very shakespearean which is appropriate because his successor is indeed craig shakespeare as we'll get on to later everyone's kind of made out that like jamie vardy's Macbeth, and that he's like you know like old nice king duncan and he's been like horribly murdered and it's kind of a bit like i've like watching the players squirm and re- try and react to that and like so for instance i think you know, Ranieri was sacked on the 24th, so a few, you know, a few days ago. And I think on the 25th, like, Riyad Mahrez managed to send out a tweet or, like, get a tweet signed off by his social media manager or have his social media manager send a tweet or whatever with him kind of hugging Ranieri. And that was followed a day later by Jamie Vardy. And I think the first sentence... Jamie Vardy posted an Instagram post and the first sentence was like, oh, I must have written and deleted my words to this a stupid amount of times or something like that. And you kind of think like, no, you <laughs> didn't. What are you on about? I mean, first of all, this is almost certainly being written by Jamie Vardy's social media manager. And second of all... Who's probably like his best friend from like high school yeah, or potentially. something. Yeah, potentially. But, you know, yeah, exactly. Like some poor guy who now works on 22K a year doing Jamie Vardy's social media. And then the guy is like, you know, it's almost as if Jamie Vardy's like, oh, I've, I'm so emotional that I've had to write this loads of times, hence explaining why it's two days late after my, like, legendary manager has been sacked. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, it, it just seems to be a ridiculously transparent excuse for clearly these players not being that bothered, which is fine, but it's just that the attempts at genuine emotion afterwards have rung incredibly insincere, I think. Well, along those lines, can I can I truther Claudio Ranieri's statement for a bit here? I mean, okay, let's let's take this. Sta- I, I I don't think Ranieri's statement is any more genuine than what the players did. To be perfectly honest, I mean, like maybe the bit about like his family and stuff, but like let's take a look at this. After the euphoria of last season and being crowned Premier League champions, all I dreamt of was staying with Leicester City, the club I love for always. Okay, so let's let's take a look at that statement. Claudio Ranieri has been a professional manager since 1986. In that time, he has managed 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 clubs. I'm just looking through there, and he has not been at any club for a very long time. We're talking like two to four years at every single club. This is a club hopper. This is his life. He goes from club to club to club. This is not a strange event for him. This is not a weird thing to have happened to be fired from a club after a short tenure there. I think this statement in which he pretends to be gravely affected by this firing just doesn't stand up to his life, his employment in this field for the last like 30 years. I mean, how is it that a guy basically makes a living of coaching at a team for two to four years at a time, gets fired two years after taking over a club and acts like this is the strangest emotion that he's barely able to deal with. I just don't buy this for, for a hot second. This statement came out 24 hours after the firing. He saw the media firestorm that Lester was getting for sacking him and he decided to hop on it. And it was a really smart PR move and people bought it hook, line and sinker. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, he'd never won the league with like a small team before. So I imagine he's probably more upset about leaving Lester than he was about leaving like the Greece national team job. Well, to be fair, the Greece national team job is the shortest job he ever had. But yes, yeah, I see but, your but, point. No, but nonetheless, I basically agree with you in that I think, again, you know, maybe I'm just at peak cynicism here, but it's almost certainly been written either by a paid PR team or, you know, a PR agency or someone who represents him, some social media guy. 
So you just kind of feel like, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's just pure cynicism about the state of football these days, but it's very difficult to separate a genuine emotion someone feels and just like something that's pure public relations. But nonetheless, like you say that um, Ranieri's public relations kind of spin was very successful. What I would say is that like that is at least credit to him in contrast to his players whose public relations was just in the, you know, the whole way they went about it you know, kind of giving a few kind of semi-emotional interviews, but basically all looking a bit shifty and embarrassed and like they'd probably caused it in some way or another. And then also putting out incredibly rubbish kind of transparent uh, social media posts. Their public relations campaign was pretty atrocious, really, and just run in a really shoddy, haphazard fashion. And I don't know, there's something about that that's a bit like, it feels a bit like things have returned to normal. Like last season feels incredibly distant now and like this time when Leicester suddenly became the number one club in the Premier League I mean their public relations is not you know when you compare like the, the current public relations storm to like how say Manchester United or Arsenal or Chelsea or someone would deal with a similar thing it's been so sort of shoddy and and like poorly done that it kind of it is very like it just kind of smacks of mid-table mediocrity which is no no insult to Leicester particularly but it just feels like that kind of surrealist season where they were on top of the world and had out for all the kind of slick club operations that has now just reverted to them. I don't know. Just it's kind of it, it's just a classic mid-table crisis kind of thing or lower mid-table crisis. So yeah, I mean it's it certainly isn't like part of the football dreamscape, and it feels very mundane and kind of slightly grubby and also like faintly ludicrous. But yeah, I think it has a. I don't know, it feels sort of like the natural order of things, even though I'm kind of don't really want to use that term, has kind of, I don't know, it just feels like, yeah, the hierarchy has returned to what it was before and the kind of mini Leicester revival or rebellion has pretty much... No, but that is, that is very much how the season feels because you, know, you just look at the top six and even the top eight and then the rest of the table and it's very much how the Premier League used to feel. And yeah. I think there was a lot of, a lot of, you know idle speculation last year about whether the new TV money was resulting in a kind of new Premier League where there was more parity and teams could compete more. And I think what we're getting the answer is, no, last year was just a very, very, very strange year and everything is pretty much back to normal now. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, that does put Ranieri and Leicester's achievement last season into context in that if it was that this was some sort of wider trend, and I know what you mean, because I, I, I remember reading a lot of kind of think pieces saying, oh, everyone from... I don't know, 8th to 18th will be expecting to win the Premier League. And I was like, no, I don't think so. But, um, (laughs) you know, people were like, oh, maybe, you know, you know, Sam Allardyce will get sacked if Crystal Palace don't win the Premier League. And you're like, I don't, I really feel that's very unlikely. Um, But yeah, I think, I think Sam Allardyce should get sacked every time he doesn't win the Premier League, uh, which, which means literally what every single job he's ever had. It means 19 managers have to depart every season for not winning the Premier League. Like that was the expectation, lads. Leicester, (laughs) did it so why can't you but um yeah I mean it does it does put their achievement into context because it wasn't it it clearly isn't the case that there was some sort of general trend of like equality there or equity or whatever it actually just seems like basically that was an anomalous season they did great things and fair play to them but um their their achievement was basically a standalone achievement and now uh things have returned to mundanity basically did you happen to watch the game yesterday where they beat liverpool relatively soundly at home i didn't watch the whole game no i was actually i was at a film preview last night for a film coming out about the wales euro 
2016 campaign. Oh, very nice. Oh, and also it's really good. Yeah, it's called Don't Take Me Home. It's by Johnny Owens. Go and watch that. The I didn't watch the game, but I saw Match of the Day, and it looked like Leicester gave Liverpool a, a fair a fair pumping, really. So yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of reminded me a, a little bit of the of the Man City game, in which a team that is much better than them decided to throw away all evidence from the last year and a half that Leicester plays a certain way, and if you just stop them from playing that way you will win fairly easily and decided to just ignore that and let Lester play the way they want to play. So I don't know. I think it's very weird that the supposed best managers in the league, you know, talking about Pep and, and Klopp in these cases, uh, seem to not do the very basic thing to shut down Lester that almost every other club, it seems like, has figured out how to do. That being said, they did get that amazing goal from Danny Drinkwater, which made no sense. And I mean, like... You know, the result of firing your manager is that one of your midfielders is going to score like a wonder goal, then yeah, firing your manager is great. You should probably do it every game. Uh, but I don't think that's, yeah. It was, it's just weird though how like it fit everyone's conception of how this narrative would go. Uh, but I look forward to checking in on Lester in about a month and see if, seeing if they're, uh, if they're still in better shape than they were, you know, last week. Yeah. I mean, as I said, you know, after the outrage of the sacking, then last night happens and pretty much football moves on. I mean, it's just genuinely, you know, for anyone who thinks there's even like a vestige of sentimentality anywhere in the game, basically the whole sort of news cycle has just moved on and Ranieri being sacked is a thing of the past. And it was like, what, five days ago or something? Yeah, Ranieri had like his day. <laughs> like, every, I guess it was longer than a day, but it was like two days. It was, let's give him his fair, his fair two days. Yeah, and uh, I've, already, I've already seen people with like, Maybe Craig Shakespeare will get the job full-time hot takes, which just feels like, I mean, literally no one has had, I mean, I say no one, obviously some people had, but very few people had heard of this guy last week. He was basically a member of Leicester's backroom staff. And now people are touting him for the job as if, you know, they've, they've seen his talent from day one. And you just think like, this, you know, I don't know, basically the short-termism of how we analyze football is just, it's becoming fairly crazy. Speaking of getting quite crazy about things, there's the whole anti-doping thing going on in the world right now, and we've mostly not talked about it in soccer, mostly because there's not really a reason to talk about it in soccer most of the time. Soccer keeps its head above water on anti-doping things most of the time somehow, and uh, this is something I wrote about actually about uh, last week, I think it was the article came out. Kind of about the, the incredibly low positive test rates in soccer around the world, uh, and just why this might be. And it was kind of in the context of the whereabouts violations that got handed down to Manchester City. And, uh, uh Bournemouth just got charged with it, and Fleetwood Town also got sanctioned, uh, uh, last month as well. So there's a, couple of things going on here, but the one thing I wanted to highlight is kind of what exactly I mean when I say those low doping violation rates. And so according to the FA's website, which does for FA players, they've done 7,745 tests since 2012, and there have been six doping violation charges during that time, which is 0.077% of tests. WADA has compiled statistics for all soccer testing, of which there have been 32,632 tests collected just in 2015, and that yielded 70 positive performance-enhancing tests for a rate of 0.22%. Now, Olympic testing rates tend to be between 1% and 2%, so we're talking many orders of magnitude below even Olympic positive testing rates. 
And the best estimates we have for how many elite level athletes actually dope range between like 29 and 45%. So they're not catching nearly as many people as even you'd expect if they just had a competent doping system. So there are a lot of questions here. And uh, Will, I think you had some kind of like thoughts on the attitude towards this in the UK. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I, I obviously found your piece pretty interesting. Um, oh, and, thank you. And, and I did read it. And my, <laughs> my gut reaction to it kind of in a quite reactionary way that I, I kind of found, I was a bit disappointed in myself really, was to kind of think, oh, well, the Premier League's an exception and that, you know, I don't, that would never happen here kind of thing, which obviously uh, in all walks of life we found is not an argument that can be used anymore. Um, and basically, <laughs> yeah, it was really strange. I think, I think in the Premier League and in England, we do have this real, like, real cons- like feeling or conception that actually doping is like basically impossible in the Premier League and that, you know, people have... Because, I mean, I suppose there have been high-profile cases, you know, through the noughties where people kind of got caught with various things. So I think Adrian Muta at Chelsea famously tested positive for cocaine, I think, and then um, Colo Torre later on in the decade or possibly around 2010, 11, something like that, he uh, tested positive for using his wife's diet pills and, you know, it's kind of stuff like that. There seemed to be evidence that people were getting caught if they did infringe. Uh, Certainly from a fan's perspective, it's almost like we have this feeling kind of a collective feeling that it's just really, really difficult, almost impossible to dope in the Premier League and that it just wouldn't, it it just doesn't happen here and it's not a problem. And then I read your piece and obviously like with all the things you're saying about, you know, how basically if you like by all standards that you measure it, it just looks laxer and laxer their policy as, as you kind of delve into it further and further. It did kind of hit home that actually maybe that's just a pure kind of illusory feeling that there's that you know that that would be impossible here and maybe it's actually much more plausible than i was necessarily on gut reaction willing to uh willing to sort of countenance so yeah it was, it, i i found it really interesting it's totally, it kind of it opened up a can of worms for me really in terms of thinking about how how we deal with doping in the, in the premier league and also just the the average fan in england and britain more generally is kind of perception of of how you know how stringent the kind of the the actual kind of uh, criteria for for checking on doping are. I think what your kind of reaction was is quite common that you know people think that there are these you know stringent rules in place and it's and it's difficult and I think one of the reasons why the Premier League likes to trot out whatever you know positive tests they get is to reinforce this idea when really if you look at those individual cases it look they look like classic cases where an athlete either didn't know they were taking something banned so they didn't do it in a way that would avoid testing because they didn't know that was something they had to avoid or um they are just (laughs) kind of stupid like and that's honestly where a lot of like positive tests come from just athletes who aren't very intelligent and don't really do the basic work necessary to avoid tests. I mean, and that's what you see in anti-doping around the world, is that the people who get caught are ones who either didn't know they were taking something illegal for whatever reason, or just aren't bright. And I think, you know, if we're just being practical about it, that's what you see. So anyone who knows they're doing something illegal and has, you know, either the individual wherewithal or the resources to avoid testing will avoid testing positive. And this is where it becomes a really interesting conversation with respect to organized football, because you have these teams around them that don't obviously don't want the players to get caught. So that almost eliminates one avenue in which, you know, players who kind of ignore this stuff might 
fall under the umbrella under normal circumstances if they played individual sports. Now they have this apparatus around them where, you know, trainers, you know, and nutritionists and advisors are telling them, oh, no, you can't take that or make sure you take that at a certain time. Um, but to your point about how, you know, stringent the, the testing is, one of the things that really stuck out to me wasn't so much the low positive test rates, but just the low number of tests in general. I mean, the FA ran... 2,442 tests last season, which to be clear includes not just the first teams in the FA, in the, in the top four leagues, but also the youth teams and the women's teams. Now they don't break down, you know, the rates of testing within those. I mean, I'm sure they test the Premier League more than say like the U8 teams, but they do in theory at least test them. And if you just like do the basic math on it, making some basic assumptions on roster size, you're looking at something like, you know, you're looking at such a low number of tests. Like it's completely plausible that players go entire seasons without getting, te- without getting tested and that they only get tested like once or twice a year. Maybe, uh, the number of testing, it basically boils down to one test for every two teams per week, which basically means per week, you know, you look at if, if the teams play one game a week, you're looking at each game one player from either team from their senior team, U23s, U18s, and the women's team, only one person from all of those teams, from both of the teams competing, are getting tested. That's just such a low rate of testing. Like any anti-doping expert would tell you, you're not catching anybody with that rate of testing. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because obviously I, I find it interesting what you said about the fact that people generally get caught when they don't think they're doing anything wrong or when you know they just do something stupid. Because, you know, actually thinking about it, a lot of a lot of times people do fail tests. I mean, Saido Berahino recently, it was to do with, I think, consuming ecstasy or MDMA or, you know, some sort of recreational drug. And then also there was like Jose Baxter, a former Everton youth player who also has had several bans for kind of recreational drug t- taking. It does tend to be like, well, I mean, almost exclusively in the Premier League, as far as I can think of in the last kind of 10, 15 years. It's almost always recreational drugs, which suggests to me that, yeah, you're right. They're things that people just like, you know, they take in their spare time. They don't think of as performance enhancers and they basically have no worries about, they just don't think about the fact that they might, you know, fail a test because of those things. But then I suppose if they're failing tests for stuff like that, you'd think that there would be more people failing, you know, even in the small test samples that you have, there would be a few people who, if like, say, you know, steroid use was endemic, that those people would, you know, a few people would ping up, surely. But I, I don't know. I mean, what what's your, like, give me the lowdown on that. Wouldn't, wouldn't you get kind of a few anomalies where people are just like, even if they knew how to like sort of, um, you know, roughly predict when they might have tests or whatever, that surely some people would fuck it up occasionally? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I mean, I'm just speculating here because we don't have enough information to really make informed uh, opinions. So, you know, obviously I'm not, a, a, you know, legal advisory. I'm not accusing any individual player of doping. I'm just, you know, making the broad claim that the numbers don't match up with what we know about, you know, doping rates in professional sport. Sure. That being said, there are a couple of things to consider here. One is the low testing rates may indicate that even if a player is doing, is using banned substances and is not doing it in the most intelligent way to avoid regular testing, they're still getting tested so rarely that, you know, they could fuck up their cycles and still not get tested during the time where they're dirty. It's, I mean, I, I, 
let me put this rate of testing in perspective for you. Like if you're an Olympic athlete living in the U S and subjected to WADA's random testing, you get tested as many as several dozen times a year, but almost always more than nine or 10 times a year. Usually it's a couple of times a month you get tested. So the idea that you could be a premier league player and based on these numbers, you know, even weighting them more heavily towards the premier league, maybe only get tested two or three times a year. That's so low that, I mean, you it would have to be a confluence of circumstances in which you screw up your cycle, you don't really cover it up in an intelligent way, and you happen to get tested during that, you know, like, week period where you screwed up your cycle. And I think just in general that seems very unlikely, but I see your point in that we should still see it happen occasionally, and we really don't, which leads me to believe that there's some kind of organization to it, which means I think that it's certainly reasonable to conclude that there's some kind of, I don't know if it's the clubs kind of coordinating it a little bit or the team doctors coordinating it or the clubs refer to the players to a doctor who can help them out and the doctors coordinating it. You know, it's just, there's, there's definitely something going on here where it's more than just players individually of their own volition deciding to uh, take banned substances. You have the details. You're the details man when it comes to doping. But no, I just, you know, it's, a, it's an inch, it's, it definitely interests me because I had previously kind of felt, as I said, that, you know, it was not, it was not kind of a concern or, and, you know, to an extent that was kind of, I was a bit like, it made me think I was possibly not fulfilling my curious journalistic duty by uh, sniffing around that. But then at the same time, I don't know, it just genuinely, it's kind of a cultural assumption. Well, this I think. is, this is kind of something I wanted to ask you about though, because like every time a doping controversy comes out, it always seems like UK authorities and journalists are taking take incredibly hard lines about it like they're always the first to kind of nail their flags to the door so to speak so it does it does confuse me why they seem so uninterested in what's going on in their own backyard well as i said i just i think it's a cultural assumption i think there's a real feeling that it's just not a problem and then people you know either neglect it or like you know i guess there's probably a lot of people out there who have far better club contacts than I do who don't want to, you know, sabotage their uh, their relationships at a club. But anyway, that's that's speculation really. But um yeah, it's certainly from from the evidence of, of what you wrote the other day, certainly worth something worth people uh people paying more attention to, I guess, and possibly doing a little bit more I don't know, if not digging, then just being, you know, just kind of scrutinizing the process more carefully because yeah, I you know, I know I know you have um you have unorthodox opinions on doping and think that basically let's just sack off all like <laughs> sack off anti-doping because it's pointless. But I would like to believe in my own kind of cosseted moral way that the Premier League was a, was a clean league. So yeah, it's something worth people scrutinizing more. I think before we move on, I did want to kind of add my own views on this topic in general, which, you know, aren't as extreme as you just painted them, but some might consider them extreme for sure is in that, I think especially in a, in an environment like the you know the, the FA where players are part of teams and they have constant access to free medical advice um I I have trouble getting worked up over the idea of doping because I don't think it's likely that players will do something to harm themselves when they're in these environments because they have so much of readily, they're, they're, they're just so constantly monitored for their medical well-being that, 
you know, and, and that's not even getting into the possibility that the clubs are involved in the process, which I don't think we can dismiss. Uh, and if that's the case, then the players are doing this in an incredibly safe environment. And it's unlikely that this is having, you know, negative effects on their health. And if that's the case, I find it difficult to get too worked up over, you know, whether this is, this is ethical or good or whatever, considering that we, you know, everyone is so inept at preventing it. Uh, so yeah, and, and that's not even to mention the fact that, uh, doping probably allows for the level of competition that we enjoy. I think without doping, you wouldn't be able to see players consistently sprinting 10 kilometers a game, playing multiple times a week and not really getting any significant breaks over the summer. Like their bodies would break down. I think, you know, there's plenty of, of, uh, indirect evidence that this is going on based on that available information. And I don't know. I like, I like soccer. I like watching it at this level. I like, um, I like the product that, you know, doping likely allows us to enjoy without the players experiencing negative health effects. I just am losing sight of where the damage is anymore, if that makes sense. Sure. I still, I'm still feeling incredibly cautious about all this. Like, you sound so much more certain than I am. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm, <laughs> I'm still a non-believer, even though I'm, maybe the scales are starting to fall from my eyes. Although, come over to the dark side. <laughs> although, I, it has to be said, I mean, I don't, you know, this isn't, this isn't proof. This is sheer, like, you know, conjecture really, but circumstantial yeah, evidence. Yeah, but yeah, but no, sure. some circumstantial evidence the other, other way, I guess, is that it's interesting that I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any former players or youth prospects or failed youth prospects or even like people in, involved in like setups, you know, staff, coaching staff, medical staff, whatever, who've turned whistleblower on it and ever mentioned anything to do with, with doping in, in really in for the Premier League or English football in terms of organized doping. So, I mean, that's kind of, I'm sh- that's purely circumstantial again, doesn't, doesn't prove that it's not a thing. But it is, that's kind of worth bearing in mind as well. That is interesting. You would think that considering that some people leave football clubs feeling quite disgruntled, that um, someone might potentially have broken the silence on it were it, a, uh, you know, a kind of a real organized cabal of kind of, uh, you know, if, if the whole culture of football was predicated on that idea, then I think possibly we would potentially have found some sort of information leak on that by now. So I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one. I, I guess there's... I guess there's circumstantial evidence both ways. No, that's definitely a good point. And I mean, there are, there are definitely reasons to believe it might not be as widespread as we think it is, or at least as I think it is, I should say. But I will also say that, you know, we get hints of it every once in a while, and it seems to not get the press that, you know, it might if it was coming from another sport or another part of the world. And I think this is part of the reason why we perceive it to be not as big of a problem. I mean, just off the bat, like, I mean, this is kind of the thing I always come back to is Leo Messi got a medical exemption so he could take human growth hormone as a kid. Now there was almost, there's no medical evidence that he needed it to be a functional human being. It was growth hormone so that he could grow to be big enough to be a professional soccer player. Now, if that's not a performance enhancing substance that violates the spirit of the sport, I'm not really sure what is. Now, in no way, shape, or form and I'm, am I saying that I think Leo Messi shouldn't be allowed to take that stuff. Honestly, I don't care. It got us Leo Messi, and everyone is glad that Leo Messi has existed in his current form to play the game at the level that he has. 
I just think it's completely ridiculous that we also pretend that this doesn't happen, we don't know about it, and therefore it doesn't exist. You know what I mean? Yeah, I suppose if we take the moral posture that, like, anything that, uh, you know, kind of subverts the absolute natural norm of our bodies is, you know, somehow evil or amoral and shouldn't has no place in sport, we're probably, like, we're probably undermining, yeah, quite a lot of, like, our enjoyment of sport and also there's probably i mean not just like i mean that's an interesting example but there are probably hundreds of examples like that not only across football but across all sorts of sports so yeah it's yeah it's it's kind of it's certainly a moral gray zone as opposed to a black or white yeah and i mean like i think personally i hope that learning more about how soccer players use drugs to enhance their performance in a safe way leads us to be more accepting of using drugs to enhance performances in a safe way in the athletic realm instead of further demonizing it and creating this incredibly strict structure where uh players can't do that like that's that's my hope because i don't actually want the players to stop using safe means to enhance their performance and compete in a more healthy way, which I think, you know, a lot of what doping is now is just that it allows them to compete in a more healthy way because they don't get injured from the rigorous schedules that they now have to compete in. Um, but anyways, that's, that's just kind of my, my pie in the sky dream, but I'm sure it won't happen. Of course, I'm saying this at the exact same time the U.S. government is holding a hearing on anti-doping uh, because the witch hunt must continue. Yeah, indeed. indeed. Uh, I'm getting angry. Uh, I don't want to get angry, especially while I'm sick. So let's relieve some tension by this week's edition of Manager Fight. Manager Fight! Uh, all right, this week, in honor of Claudio and Ranieri getting sacked, we imagine he has some steam to blow off. So let's imagine Ranieri involved in this week's manager fight. Uh, and we thought it's only fitting that he be fighting his replacement, Craig Shakespeare, because it's only fair that Shakespeare get to fight Ranieri, I think. What do you think, Will? Well, as, as you know, but uh, the listener does not know, I was actually in favor of this year's Claudio Ranieri fighting last year's Claudio Ranieri. But you told me that we're not allowed to bend the rules of time and space to use to, to sort of facilitate manager fight. So, although, well, it's not so much that I don't want it. It's not so much that I'm like, I, I don't want to do it ever. But like, <laughs> this is only what the third edition of manager fight. Like, we don't need to be stretching the laws of space time just yet. You know, in order, like, let's, let's consider that once we get to like chips 40 <laughs> or chips 50, if we're on the air for that long, then we can have your time traveling manager. Yeah, I guess. Let's stay, let's stay on brand for the moment because yeah, we haven't exhausted this medium yet. We haven't entirely knackered out this concept to the time, to the point where we're actually having to fucking go in a time machine and get managers from the past. So yeah, no, fair enough. Okay. Ranieri versus Craig Shakespeare. Aaron, your thoughts? Go. On paper, this seems like a complete Craig Shakespeare beatdown. Like, I don't really see what Ranieri has to offer from a, from a physical standpoint. He's 65 years old to Craig Shakespeare's 53. Shakespeare is a, is a as, you, as you put it before the show, I believe, a big lad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's certainly... More fat shaming. <laughs> Yes, he is. He is the what was his name? Uh, He's the Wayne so, Shaw of replacement. Wayne Shaw. I, can, I, I was going to say Luke Shaw, but I'm like, no, Luke Shaw is not the fat guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's he's the he's the Wayne Shaw of this week's manager fight. Uh, 
I don't know. They're about the same height. Ranieri doesn't seem to have any advantages in terms of reach or or any you know any other physical attribute. The only thing I can kind of say is that you know Ranieri is a little bit fitter. You know, if he makes and by by little I mean a lot. Um, and if he makes Shakespeare run around a little bit, you know, if he's, he's a bit wily, maybe he can maybe he can get. But I don't know. I just don't. I don't see how this works out. With I just don't see how this ends. Other than Shakespeare sitting on Ranieri, giving him a noogie. Okay, well, I have one non-serious point to make and one serious point to make. I'll make my non-serious point first. That is that if Ranieri, if we're wrong and Ranieri did write his Leicester statement and he is actually feeling, you know, a kind of devastation, a desolation of the soul then I think, you know, Craig Shakespeare, you know, he's, he's happy, he's just got a new job, whatever, you know, he's profited at Ranieri's expense, you know, through no machination of his own, but nonetheless. And I think Ranieri, despite, you know, not having the physical heft or indeed sort of Herculean strength of Craig Shakespeare, would have the, you know, the kind of motivation, the anger, the kind of burning injustice to uh, kind of, if if he wrote that statement, this is, I think he could just use that sheer emotional kind of weight to just batter Craig Shakespeare into submission. I think I think in to use a football cliche, I think Ranieri wants it more. Um, so yeah, I, I'm actually going to back Ranieri in this one. My other point, a more serious point, is that I actually read somewhere that Ranieri was known when he played in Italy back as a player for kind of being quite for being quite hard, like being just quite tough. And like genuinely, I think people didn't, you know, people didn't like playing against him. He was quite kind of, I don't know, he was all elbows and knees, I guess. I, I, you know, I'm not sure. He seems like a nice bloke, but I secretly suspect in, in all seriousness that actually Ranieri has a very hardy kind of Italian guy inside him. He just wants to like elbow people right on the nose. So that sounded like a really, really veiled way of calling him the fascist. Uh, uh, no, no, <laughs> no, no. I just mean, literally, I think he's like a, no, like a tough kind of like, I think, is he from Rome? I think he's like a tough little Roman guy. No, 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 not a, no, not a fascist. <laughs> I mean, what kind of, what kind of hard nosed Italian guy who just wants to throw elbows isn't a fascist? Well, I don't know. Like Rome had an empire once, you know, like they managed to do that without, doing fascist stuff although famously fascism borrowed a lot of their insignia yeah so i mean i i think i think that remark was historically plausible i don't just, look look yeah you know. if you want to call claudio ranieri <laughs> no actually i'm not even gonna go into this basically no <laughs> i i've already called him a big baby and a phony today why don't i just add fascists um, well there are many reasons that we shouldn't to be fair i think he would have gotten on with uh, jamie vardy much better if he actually was oh, a fascist God. we're gonna have to cut this whole bit <laughs> anyway um I, 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 you're telling me jamie vardy isn't like brexit voter 101 come no. on <laughs> remember the racist remarks genuinely we can't we can't air this we're not gonna be able to air this bit <laughs> the, well his racist remarks are are absolutely well documented this is not this is not something i'm making up come on no i know i know I, I'm, I'm not i'm not saying you're making that up but i feel like we're maybe drawing some some, oh, I don't know, some edgy conclusions from that. 
Either way. You know, this is such classic, like, English journalism. Like, you know, you guys just, oh, God, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this completely factual thing because I might get well, sued. And it's sorry, like... Wait. <laughs> in, in what way is any of this factual? What I'm thinking is I'm not allowed to say this completely non-factual thing because, <laughs> because it will get me sued. No, I'm, I'm purely worried about this from a non-factual standpoint. No, 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 the Jamie Vardy racist thing that's factual. Okay. He did that. I mean, I agree not, with that. I, yeah. that, that. The fascist part, I agree. That's that's <laughs> that's a factual. stretch. Um, nonetheless, yes, the Jamie right. Vardy. Yeah, no, it, I'm not. I'm not arguing he's a pleasant man, or indeed that he didn't in, in abuse a Japanese man in the casino one time. But um, yeah, extending that to his uh, his kind of political views is possibly far fetched. Nonetheless, Ranieri, I think he's tough from Rome. Apparently, he's from the San Saba neighborhood near the Circus Maximus which I reckon is tough, like, working-class neighbourhood. So I'm going to say Ranieri's got, you know, the Roman chops to just, like, absolutely go for Craig Shakespeare. And also, he's going to feel that injustice of the soul, which I think will motivate him, drive him on. So I I strongly uh, disagree with your conclusion that Craig Shakespeare would win this fight. That's interesting. I think think you have some solid solid basis there for that belief. Uh, But I think appealing to kind of what kind of person Ranieri was like 40, 50 years ago might not have much bearing on uh, his ability to fight today, Uh, especially a man who seems to have like roughly 100 pounds on him. Yeah, potentially. But then also I think Claudio Ranieri, like sort of uh, just a kind of he's got a wild card as well because he's got like a really tough like like Italian mum in like her 90s who I reckon he could kind of. She could probably join in and just like whack Craig Shakespeare with her handbag. So. Oh, that's a that's a good point. I mean, we did say that like this is a touchline manager fight rules. So like, I'm not really sure how his mom would get in on the equation, considering she doesn't seem to leave Italy. But uh, that's an interesting thought. Well, uh, I imagine I imagine I it's know, more like might... a kind of pokeball kind of. He th- he throws a pokeball. His mom comes out and whacks Craig Shakespeare with a handbag, and then yeah, you know Ranieri's won. Uh, yeah, I'm not man. Time travel, pokeballs. You you really can't stick to the rules here on these manager fights. Uh, I think we gotta call this a draw because I'm not I'm not convinced, uh, and it doesn't sound like you're convinced either. I'm so. just very glad that I've managed to get Claudio a draw in what were highly unlikely circumstances, and you only managed to call him a fascist three times. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Uh, you want to do two quick reader questions? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, the first one comes from Twitter user at Francis Adujer. Oh, Francis Adu Jr. There we go. Uh, I had to turn it into a word. Uh, but he goes by a tired black man, which I, I'm... Yeah. His question is, will Monaco ever stop scoring goals? Well, I mean, in theory... There's going to be a time where they stop scoring goals. But to your, to his point, uh, man, Monaco are fun to watch, aren't they? I mean, you know, the the question itself, I mean, yeah, they obviously will stop scoring goals. I mean, at some point, Monaco, <laughs> you know, I mean, there might be some sort of devastating war or like something and football will stop or like the sun will eventually die. So, yes, they will absolutely with certainty stop scoring goals at some point is the answer to your question. Whether or not they're entertaining or not is just purely peripheral to that to that answer, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you for for not answering my question, Will. You have a you have a bright future in public relations <laughs> ahead of you. As uh-huh. as Jamie Vardy's public relations guy. <laughs> yeah, how dare you call my client a fascist? <laughs> there you go. Um, all right, I think uh, I think I, I 
I don't really want to answer any other questions for today. Uh, I need to go lie down for a while. I've expended all my energy, uh, perhaps libeling one of the one of England's most famous players. So yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting way to spend your day off. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, Will, do you have anything you want to tell the people about? Anything you've written? Uh, anything you're going to be writing? Anything they should look um, out for? I did an interview with uh, with David Hay. Um, the boxer recently that that was uh, that was interesting. He's quite kind of a character of contradictions. I enjoyed doing that. Um, and in terms of the rest of the week, it's kind of a bit up in the air for Vice Sports UK because my editor Jim has been uh, has been away for the last couple of days, so we have to figure things out. But um, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm speaking to a guy who make who tries to make or who, or who has tried to make every single Premier League ground out of Lego tomorrow. So look out for a piece about. Guys who love football and Lego, basically. It's beautiful. Uh, I look forward to reading that uplifting piece of content. Um, I have written. I'll, I'll link to the article about uh, European soccer and doping in the in the show notes for this episode. Hope you check that out. And uh, I think well tomorrow. So when you're listening to this today, we'll I'll, we'll probably have put up an article I've been working on for a little bit about the Mamadou Sakho doping case, which is quite strange. Nobody really comes out looking very good, and it raises some pretty profound questions about what exactly WADA is up to. Uh, so I ho- hope you'll check that out as well. Um, we, I think that's about it. Will, uh, any final thoughts? Only that I hope you get well very soon. Oh, thank you, Will. I appreciate it. Uh, and we appreciate you for listening. Uh, send us emails at our email address, chips at vicesports.com. Uh, tweet at us at chips podcast. And, uh, yeah, let us know if you have any questions for next week, uh, which we'll be happy to answer. Hopefully ones that, uh, have a bit less metaphysical certainty <laughs> involved. Uh, but thank you as always. And, uh, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Yeah,